Dear Mrs. Langle, your book, Dragons in the Waters, just arrived. There you are on the jacket, a genuine human being with a healthy, wholesome smile. It's good to have this uh, picture because it will somewhat humanize our correspondence. You'll be more than a collection of words and phrases. However, I feel that I've reached an impasse in my literary relations with you. You appear to be very religious, a Catholic, stemming from a long line of Baptist preachers. I respect this. Because my mother was Catholic, I can't but help to associate this religion with delicate lace scarves and ever more delicate ladies in deep communion with their God. It's all so idyllic so much the American dream. But I write about that other side of the coin, the American nightmare. And nightmares are some of the most beneficial human experiences because they almost always pinpoint major problems. Their intensity moves people to change. The problem is I don't want to scare you away or to offend you. You are probably somebody's sweet grandmother. And, and, and persons from your position in life are not turned on by the politically unconventional and socially abrasive subject matter in my writings. Now, even when I write for black children, the ideas I promote might offend you. You see, I have a short story that I completed as a part of my thesis requirements for my bachelor's degree that I'm considering stretching out into a novel. I certain, certainly wouldn't want anybody sending a story like this to my grandmother. It's about as, as abrasive as Richard Wright's native son. So, so let me know whether you think it will be proper for you to read and criticize it, and let me know whether and how it might be publishable. Uh, sincerely, Ron Irwin. Dear Mr. Irwin, it always worries me when anybody says that I appear to be deeply religious, because religious is a loaded word. Hitler was deeply religious. Hate is usually masked by religion. I don't wear lace scarves like your grandmother, and my communion with God is stormy. What religion I have is anything but idyllic, and if it doesn't embrace your nightmare, then it isn't even religion. A great many people go to church with regularity because it's the safest place they can go to escape God. And I don't want to escape God, even though encounters with God are not cozy. Remember the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel all night? And forever after he limped because any human being who encounters God bears the mark forever after and can be recognized. And people who bear the mark are often persecuted and driven out because of it. I have a hunch, Mr. Irwin, that you bear the mark of that wild wrestling. So don't worry about being abrasive. If a violin is to make music, there must be the abrasion of the bow against the taut gut. So there's the abrasion which is creative, or the abrasion which is made when the bow is banged meaninglessly against the strings, and that's never real or true. I want to read your story. If I can do anything at all to help make you a truer writer with greater control of your medium, well, that's a big part of my religion. 
Why don't you send the story as it is, and maybe I might have some suggestions as to how to make it a saleable novel without losing any of its truth, or indeed abrasiveness. Yes, I am a grandmother, but not a very sweet one. I'm nearly six feet tall and am built somewhat like a giraffe, and I am excessively nearsighted, physically, but not, I hope, in other ways. Sincerely, Madeline Langle. Thank you for focusing the blurred picture I had of you regarding your religion and position in society. I'm sure your grandchildren think of you as sweet in spite of all you say to the contrary. Though I felt dragons in the waters moved a little too slowly at times, you weaved the plot well, and it definitely held my interest. I'm beginning to recognize you in these two books you have sent. I will uh, be anxiously awaiting your comments on this story. It's called Razor Blade. Many thanks for the letter and the manuscript. It bears out my conviction that you are that peculiar creature, a born writer, and I also feel that you have the staying power to learn the technique, which must go along with the gift. Razor Blade is a good story, but it's not ready yet. First of all, it's too short, or possibly too long, but I think that it should be a short novel, not a long story. Many of the scenes need to be fleshed in, and if you lengthen the piece, you'll have a chance to develop the characters more, which will help the reader identify with them. Henry James says that a writer of fiction must render, not report, show, not tell. Go over the story and you will see for yourself where you have reported, reported, not rendered, these scenes now need to be shown. If the audience for this is children, and I have a hunch it ought to be, we need to think about language. Now, your language is accurate rather than abrasive, but a word can have a more powerful effect on a reader used once than used 20 times. And I doubt any children's editor is going to let you use motherfucker more than once, if that. But that's something to be worried about later when you have a full manuscript. Most of the other people who have read this story could identify with some of the characters and they quickly grasped the story's meaning. That you did not get this understanding raises interesting questions. Should I revise it to expand the audience or should I continue to, to direct it toward the majority of black people? One of the most fascinating discoveries I have made while writing is that in the process of struggling to get it out and down on paper and organized, I constantly learn as much about myself as I do about the literary craft. Since you have written 20 books, no doubt you discovered this long ago. But these degrees of self-knowledge are completely new to me. It's like I'm calling on previously unknown and untapped resources to break through all the negative forces outside this cell trying to pull me back, and new resources to combat these formidable negative forces inside this cell. Inspiration. I looked back over some scenes, didn't like what I saw, and I'm re-rewriting them, which means I also have to retype everything that follows them, of course. I'm glad you're learning about rewriting. The difference between the amateur and the professional is the ability to rewrite. I'm convinced that by the time you're through, you'll have a saleable manuscript, and I look forward to reading it. Thank you for the photograph. You look just the way I hoped you would look. You didn't really need to tell me which one was you. Would you rather have me call you by the name on the photograph, Amalcar?
Names are very important to me, and I feel that our names are one of the greatest gifts we can give each other. Yes, I do prefer that you call me by my real name, Ahmad Amokar Ahman Sundiata. My friends call me Amokar. Thank you for giving me your name. I give you mine, Madeline. Have you read The Other Side of the Sun? As you remember, I was afraid parts of it might be offensive to you, so I am eager to know what you think. Yes, I finished it. It leaves me convinced that you are a good woman. Perhaps too good a woman, too warm and full of heart to write this novel. As in everything I've read by you, the basic Christian virtue that obviously permeates your life is present in the tone, in the mood of this story. Even when you speak of horrible lynchings and castrations, it's not really so horrible because your goodness has spilled over into the description and modified its effect. Your personality, which is probably pure of hate, blurs the demarcation between the hateful clan and the righteous people. I mean, although you say the clan is evil and uh, the, 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 the way you say it, it, it says they're not so bad. I mean, and I, I don't dig the way you set up two equal evils, the Xenomans and the clan, while casting the aunts and Stella and, and Honoria and her house nigger husband as the good guys. I mean, if I've got to be a house nigger who decides his life, uh, uh, who dedicates his life to properly serving the white folks' coffee, I and my entire generation will choose to be something else every time. But you mean well. That's what gets me. I mean, you mean so well. And all the condescending passages are unintentional. You just didn't know how to express what you wanted and what definitely needed to be expressed. If there's one thing I deeply want you to gain from our friendship. It is the ability to express your ideas and feelings about this swirl of racial conflicts in a fashion that puts to use your considerable gifts for the good you strive to do. Well, you're teaching me a lot. I don't think I want to mean well. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I do want to write what needs to be written, and I'm grateful for your willingness to help me. I responded positively to both of the articles you sent me and agreed with them. Don't ever hesitate to push me into wider and deeper thinking. I sent Razorblade to my agent, and what he feels is lacking in the first chapters, and I do not entirely agree with him, is that quality of storytelling which makes the reader want to keep on turning the pages. Now, I found in reading your story that I did want to continue, which is why I don't agree with my agent. On the other hand, because I am personally interested in you, my judgment is not as objective as it might be. I am eager indeed for you to finish the book so that I can read the rest of the story. I am uh, concerned about what your agent said about the first chapter of Razorblade. However, I'm gonna finish as I plan and go from there. I badly want to submit a short story for the pen prisoner contest, but I don't know where I get the time to complete a new one. There is that story which takes place in Vietnam. The action comes, 
Do, do you still have a copy? I was thinking that uh, you could perhaps criticize the story and, and make suggestions for changes that could maybe get it in prize-winning shape. Let me know so I'll know whether to pursue some other course. I'm enclosing my suggestions for The Action Comes, which I think is a very fine story. I don't think there's much more to do to get it in shape for submission. And good news, a typewriter should be coming to you soon. Ooh, I can't quite thank you enough for your good deeds and getting the grant for the typewriter. I, I don't, however, want to get into a dependent relationship with you. See, that's one of the bad, unmanly uh, things about prison. We need so much that when we know people who can afford and are willing to give, we can fall into an all-getting and no-giving relationship. Now, we are friends, but I still don't dig this one-sided part of our friendship. I don't think there's much danger of your ever getting into a dependent relationship with anybody, but there are two ways of looking at dependency. Dean Inge said, God promised to make you free. He never promised to make you independent. I am dependent in many freeing ways on a great many people. You're doing something for me simply by being my friend. If we keep on with this friendship, and I hope we will, there will surely be a time when I'll need to ask you for something more tangible. But friendship is slowly becoming a lost art in this world, and for me, friendship is what makes the wheels go round. How are your revisions coming? Uh, you probably have the impression that people in prison have an unlimited amount of time on their hands to read and write. Not so. No, I have been under no illusion that people in prison have unlimited time to write. In fact, I have been amazed that you managed to get as much done as you do. It seems to me that under the most difficult, if not impossible, circumstances, you look well to each day, culling flowers from the desert, like the true mystics. To live each day well, as I believe you do, is to be whole, and the root of whole is the same as the root of holy. I'm still working on the story, and also on Razor Blade. In the last two months, however, conditions here have not been conducive to creativity. Tensions, violence, neo-Nazi inmates, many hassles so swarm around us every day. And I wish I could isolate myself and just work, but I cannot. I have responsibilities among my brothers. My work is coming right along, though. No matter what happens, I commit myself to writing something every day. I've been doing this long enough to know how much writers, this one in particular, lose when they lay off. Plus, you busted me. I mean, when, when you told me to go back over all the sections of my story where I told rather than rendered, you caught me in all the places where I consciously or unconsciously took a shortcut. Now, to render these sections requires the creations of entire backgrounds, deeper characterization to maintain verisimilitude. I mean, I, I have done this and thereby lengthened the story to where the first two chapters are much longer than the entire story was at first. One night when I was in this steaming dungeon sweating over this typewriter, I got a good laugh when the thought came to me that 
she knew what she was doing. We must both keep making leaps of faith. I represent in my life so much that you have just cause to hate, that I fear for misunderstanding and for our friendship, which is very important to me. Do you understand that I have come to love you as a friend with no chronological barriers and as a fellow artist and struggling human being? It is a marvel and a glory to me that we are both struggling for the same goals, despite the radical difference in our backgrounds. Madeline, have you heard the good news? The action comes, won a first prize in the Penn Prison Writers Contest. Congratulations on your prize. I'm truly delighted and not surprised because all along I've thought highly of your talent. You have worlds in you and material to fill a library. Yeah, you are right. I have enough material in my head for many novels. But if I don't finish this one, pretty soon I'll flip. <laughs> what a struggle. Worthy of any warrior's valor. What a struggle. <laughs> I'll win. Excerpt of Poker Face by Heather Jarvis. When my mom went to prison, my father stepped up. He took care of me. Picture it. A big, manly construction, construction worker with callous hands and a sad, fragile little girl who just wanted her mom. He did it despite all the obstacles we faced, despite the fact he had no idea what he was doing. He didn't know how to comb my hair or what I liked to eat, but we figured it out. I wanted a clubhouse. He gave me wood and nails and let me create whatever my young mind could think up. It took me seven stitches for my hammer, but I had my clubhouse. Movie director, my father, bought me a video camera. It took me a hundred takes, but I made my movie. Have you ever seen a Christmas tree decorated solely by an eight-year-old girl. You could say, it's interesting. It was covered in lots of annoying icicles and fruity candy canes. Decorated with whatever shiny bulbs he let me pick out at the big lot across town. On Christmas morning, under the tree, there was exactly what I asked for. Nothing more, nothing less. He would stand watching me, rubbing his head with excitement when I became giddy, knowing he had pleased me. 
He sang me in his own little made-up tunes every morning, repeating, it's time to get up for school. He taught me how to be a kid, and I taught him how to be a parent. When I was about 16 years old, I found myself soaked walking aimlessly in the rain. I was in the middle of nowhere in Lubeck, West Virginia, with my friend Amanda, lugging a case of beer. My phone beeped, alerting me my battery was almost dead. I did what I always did. I called my dad. Drunk and frantic, I asked him to come and get me. Problem was, I didn't know where I was. I was coming down a backscare black top road surrounded by woods to a clearing. Look around. What do you see? My father asks. I looked around and described to him what I saw, a little abandoned church with an overpass behind it, up a steep hill. Then, nothing. My phone died. Amanda and I were both rebellious, both fighting a war with adolescents, insecurities, and fitting in. I don't know why we left the party. Maybe somebody pissed us off, or maybe we just got bored of the usual beer pong and drunk advances. I do know Amanda and I had found ourselves lost sitting on a curb drinking cheap beer while the wind and the rain fought around us. We were out of options. We couldn't find our way back and we couldn't find our way to the main road. We were stuck in a drunken maze. The highway taunted us from up the hill with sounds of passing cars. The hill was an impossible trek. For a moment we, got, we had forgotten where we were. We just enjoyed the rain and the beer. We were living young and careless. Amanda yelled into the empty church parking lot, Hello out there! Oh, I yelled, impressionating George in the jungle. God himself was probably laughing at us in that deserted church parking lot. Eventually, a horn's blared answer us from the highway above. We look up the steep hill to see my dad's little blue Dodge Dakota two-seated truck 
with its rusted steel toolbox pulled over the shoulder of the highway. The window was rolled down and he was honking down at us. He was yelling, prompting us to climb up the hill. Amanda and I look at each other. Then, at the soggy case of beer, fuck it. Amanda's drunk ass had the idea to put the beer up her soaked hoodie. We thought we were so slick and so inconspicuous. Amanda and I began to trek up the hill to the truck, falling and sliding down the wet grass. She was struggling with the beer, one falling out here and there. We were trying to grip into flimsy grass, only for it to rip from the ground. My dad was rooting at us the whole time. We were on the tree, like we were in the three yard lane in the Super Bowl. Finally, we reached the top, feeling triumphant. We were soaked with rain and sweat. We stumbled over the barrier and flung the case of beer into the back of the truck, as if my dad didn't hear the thumb, and as if he didn't see it fall out of Amanda's hoodie and roll down the reel, right along with us during our failed attempts to scale the hill. But we eventually made it. We got in the cab acting casual, like my dad hadn't just rescued drunkards from the middle of nowhere. She was on the seat. I sat on the console of the small truck, close enough to my dad that my wet clothes were seeping into his. You girls didn't bring a case of beer with you, did you? He asked. Smiling. He wasn't stupid, but he played dumb. Now that he had found us, he was done with the worry. He had moved into entertainment. No, Daddy. I managed to get the radio on, and we drunkenly sang all the way to town, to the window, to the fall, we sang in our little John voices. When we came into abandoned 7th Street, it was late, deserted. My dad took us to Hardy's fast food restaurant. He was cool like that. It was open 24 hours. We ordered the famous $6 burger with greasy curly fries and large, thick strawberry milkshakes with whipped creams and lots of apple turnovers. My dad just laughed and paid. 
when we stumble into the house that usher us to the kitchen table where we ate our food like homeless people in a soup kitchen. Then he made us go to bed. We really consisted of us drunkenly laying in my queen-size bed, talking about what if, watching the ceiling spin. You all all right? He kept yelling up the stairs every time the floor creaked from the movement. We answered, yeah, down the attic stairs, half annoyed. He just cackled. Fast forward to family day at the Ohio Reformatory for Women. The day was drawing to an end. How do you look your father in the eye, the person who raised you, knowing it's the last time you will ever see him? It's terrifyingly tragic. The day went too fast filled with the chaos of sticky-faced children who ate way too much candy from the peanut running every which way between activities. The face-painting station was packed with children expectantly wanting Spider-Man or butterfly faces. The sounds of children and line dancing music filled the gym. The bowling pins were being trampled like grass at the yard cell by young ones too little to even put their fingers in a ball correctly. Mothers gleefully chase after them even if it was just for a day. Unlike them, that day was all I had to feel his soft, weary touch. I rubbed his hands, scalped from chemotherapy. I longed to go home and rub lotion on. He had never been much of an emotional person, but that day was an exception. He gave in like a house in a sinkhole, just like me. He knew. All the wishes in the world wouldn't stop his stage four cancer from attacking every organ in his now frail body. Despite the pain, I was proud of him. He was not letting cancer win. He wanted to live. He refused to bring a wheelchair turning the short trek from the entrance building to the gym into a marathon. He endured three hours driving 
getting lost a couple of times with screaming kids to come here and find me. We smile in front of a beach-themed backdrop of an orange and yellow sunset on a horizon. There was a little sailboat riding against the waves in a big palm tree in the sand. There was a boardwalk along the beach. I wish I could take the boardwalk, boardwalk and go far away where cancer couldn't find us. My daughter, Adessa, never had her dad around. So she became my dad's too. It was interesting because by then he knew all about raising a little girl. It gave me comfort to know she was overprotective of him at family day visit, like I'm sure she was at home witnessing him decline. Adesa cares so much, even in her adolescence, that she trailed behind him going to the bathroom. When he dropped his oxygen tank, she just pick it up casually like she did all the time. My dad died almost a year later. Cancer spread like a rumor from his lungs to his liver, eventually to his brain. I felt guilty for being in prison. I felt relieved he was at peace, surrounded but alone. I told no one. I didn't want pity. I almost craved while he was sick. I wanted people to know I was suffering right along with him. I eventually told those close to me all evening my friends comfort me, coming to my aid like the Red Cross. I surprised them with how, I, how calm I was. I surprised myself. A year earlier at the family day, I felt selfish in those final moments. Instead of being with my children, like the other mothers, I lay on my dad's shoulder, crying. I clung to him tightly, just like when I was younger and wrapped myself around his leg while he was around the house. Only this time, he wasn't trying to shake me off. I suck it up in a funnel of my mind like a tornado. The memories of us 
spun around and round in my mind, tears of pain, the only thing being spit out. The thing about time is preparation, nothing left unsaid. I knew every time I talked to my dad, it may be the last. I had the luxury of saying goodbye. I told that man how much I loved and adored him every day for two years. I know, Heather, you say it every five minutes, he respond. I got time to apologize and spill my soul to him for all the wrongs I had done during my rebellious years. I asked him what he wanted me to do with my life, and he answered. I know what dreams he had for me. I know the life he wanted me to live. Months later, I'm still learning to live without him. It still hits me like an aftershock. I still dial his number on the phone only to realize he isn't going to answer. Grief sneaks up on me with something as simple as a treacherous commercial. Obdibo, it says, a chance to live longer. And then it thanks the patience of the clinical trial. Obdivo was the last thing my father tried, and it didn't save him. He didn't find refuge. However, thanks to how he lived, I did. The memories of us keep me sane. My dad always found me. Always. So even in death, even when I die, I know he will find me. I know when I'm lonely and missing him, he will find me. Even if it's only my dreams, he will find me. All of us in prison by Javon Jackson. Some prisons are pistol thick, core earth dense with a long electric fence that wraps around. And some prisons are softer than the molecules in muslin as it drapes across the bundled bed, clinging to your body. Some prisons taste like salt, copper, sludge, when you bite and crunch down to the marrow. And some prisons are gorgonzola and hollow bread enough to comfort you from leaving. Some prisons sit on ominous hills 
hundreds of miles from where your mother, brother, daughter lives. And some prisons are closer than the whip speed of electrochemicals that dodge collisions in the brain. Some prisons have unassuming names, like this, Havenworth, Hikers Island, Eagles Bay, the new Lisbon Correctional Institute. And some prisons are simply called by their God-fearing names, heroin, oxycontin, vodka, blackjack, molested for years by him. Some prisons by the night will never let you go, and some prisons in the light will never let you go. As I Hear the Rain by Douglas Weed. As I hear the rain pitter patting on the glass like tiny tap dancers with their shiny steel-tipped black shoes, I hum a little tune and wander through the greenhouse tending the vegetables growing in piles of dirt collected within plain, unornamented brown pots. She had never understood my fascination with the smell of dirt and fertilizer trapped in rows of rotting wooden benches. Rain streaks, the neglected face glaring coldly from the kitchen window as I move to protect the tomatoes from the frost that is sure to come during the night. <laughs> 